Hello, happy Monday. It is just me, Emil, with you today because the dreaded Lurgy has come for Immo and has her in its clutches. So, thoughts to her. There is only one place to start chatting about over the weekend, and that is, of course, the incredible World Cup action that we saw. England beat Colombia. They're through to the semi final, and Spain beat the Netherlands in an absolute thriller. Gee, that was a game. And then, of course, we had Australia France, possibly the greatest penalty shootout I've ever seen. Man, Australia could win this whole tournament, which is unbelievable. Go Aussie. But I actually went to the Sweden-Japan game, which Sweden won, and they kind of deserved to win. They were too big, too fast, too strong. Japan just couldn't handle them. I was supporting Japan, but I was wearing Swedish socks because it was cold. But my main lesson from that game is that sports events in New Zealand need more drums. There was like this big percussion crowd outside the game who were playing these beats, and uh, I've actually got some audio of it that I took at the game. It was lit. And also during the game, there was uh, some drumming going on as well. I'm sure it was really annoying if you were right next to them, but it created a great party-like atmosphere for the ground. So make it happen, sports people in New Zealand. Let's get more drums into sports grounds. Anyway, let's kick on with the show. Kia ora, this is Newsable. I'm Emil, and this is what's worth talking about. Labour releases tax policy pledges in an effort to win your vote. So Tover O'Brien's here to explain how they work and whether they will actually make a meaningful difference. Also, we crossed the Tasman to talk about the mysterious disappearance of 30-year-old Angie Fuller in the Australian outback. And while we've made good progress in stamping out tobacco in Aotearoa, vaping among teens has snowballed. So has this gotten just too big and too fast to stop? And finally, a salutary lesson in why you should always be careful about responding to important messages with an emoji. We've got all that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. We begin today with the all-powerful tax policy klaxon. Yes, the Labour leader Chris Hipkins announced some proposed changes to GST and working for families yesterday, which will come in force if Labour is re-elected. Tover O'Brien is Stuff's chief political correspondent, and she's here now to chat. Hello. Kia ora, Emil. Let's start with this uh, GST announcement, the worst kept secret in New Zealand politics. Tell me what's happening here. Yes, surprise, Labour is going to cut GST off um, fresh and frozen fruit and vegetables. So perhaps that was the tiny surprise in this, that frozen vegetables will be included in this. Um, So that's kind of the big bang policy as part of this family's announcement. No great surprise, but after the National Party announced it for the Labour Party a few few weeks ago, but I think the Labour Party will be kind of pleased with that in the end. They were seriously pissed off initially, but then what it's meant has happened is that they've They've had all of these headlines around it. It's a very publicly popular policy. They haven't had to explain the detail, which is where these policies come unstuck traditionally. Economists hate this stuff, but the public loves it. Also some changes to working for families in the pipeline? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is good. This is long overdue. Fiddly to explain. Um, No no one enjoys explaining working for families or in-work tax credits. I don't think that the people that even get them necessarily understand how it works, but basically... Working families who are eligible for in-work tax credits who get a bit of uh, tax back already, um, they'll get an increase. That's a more immediate impact. But working families or families who are on benefits, 
the changes that they'll see, they won't come into effect until 2026, which seems remiss to me. I would have thought those changes would be better served um, coming into effect 1st of April next year with the other ones. On the GST off fruits and veggies stuff. I mean, as you say, sounds great. Uh, has a lot of public support. But Tova, I have beside me a very delicious looking blueberry muffin, which I'm about to consume. Do we know where the GST would apply to that? Or an apple pie? Or a bag of tzatziki flavoured potato chips? At the risk of doing the government's job for it, and Chris Hipkins was kind of given a shopping list in his media conference off the back of the announcement as well. But no, your blueberry muffin would not. Basically, the way that the Labour government has tried to do this, and it is one of the greatest criticisms of any kind of exemptions around a consumption tax like GST, but the way the Labour Party is is trying to do this is, so fresh or frozen, not processed, no additives. So the example that it uses is frozen spinach, yep, fresh spinach, yep, but potatoes mashed up, coated in canola oil into frozen chips, No, because there are additives and it's been processed. And it throws up other questions, Emil, as well. Like, why on earth not period products? Why not meat as well? That's a real staple for a lot of families. And the government's kind of kicking to to cost on those issues. How do we know that these will actually be passed on to consumers? And this is actually one of the, the biggest problems with this policy. And studies all around the world have shown this, that changes to consumption taxes like GST, a significant portion isn't passed on to consumers. So what the government's done is task this new grocery commissioner that it's created, tasked it with ensuring that the savings are being gobbled up by the supermarkets. And another fish hook as well, I suppose, is that wealthier families tend to get more benefit from policies like this. So even though GST is a regressive tax, taking a, a greater proportion of lower income families' budgets, cuts to GST benefit higher income families because those wealthier households spend more on on food. I'm not don't know how much of an issue that's going to be for Labour, though, because I think most people are thinking about what it's going to do to their bill at the checkout rather than, you know, the trolley of the guy who owns the Land Rover next door. Mm. Do we know how much this GST policy is going to cost or is that, again, off in the distance? Yeah, it's going to cost $2 billion and that's why the government's focused on what it has. Initially, there was some suggestion that meat could be included as well, but cost was the, the big one, $2 billion, and it's going to be paid for... I think the government's going to get rid of some of the last of the COVID restrictions and it says it's got the money to do this, but it's drawing the line on the um, exemptions that it's created. And you'll remember as well, the finance minister, the guy who will be tasked with selling and implementing this, he said it was fraught as well. He called Mm. it in the past an absolute boondoggle to get through because of that argument, as you say, around how to define what is exempt and what is not. Taking a step back, what do you reckon, your verdict, are these vote winners, will they make a significant difference in this year's election? Not necessarily enough to win an election. It's so hard to say because the polls really are mm. kind of in this shimmy at the moment. Absolutely, ACT and National have got this. These policies are so popular. GST of food and veg, despite all economists mm. hating it, as I say, are so popular. We know that this is going to be the thing that people are voting on this year. The National Party is going to need to come to the party and it's going to be pointing, I think, mostly to that tax cut package and how much that will benefit Kiwis and showing actual money in the bank rather than just a bit chipped off your uh, your receipt at the checkout counter. It's over, O'Brien. Thank you very much. Thank you, Emil. We are going to be talking about a very costly emoji-related mishap in just a second. And with that in mind, let me ask you this. What is your favourite emoji and why? And if it is the eggplant emoji, as it probably is, do you know the story behind the popularisation of that emoji? Because 
take my word for it, it is some twisted stuff right there. Let me know. You can search us up on TikTok or Insta at NewsableNZ. And if you'd prefer to write us a lengthy email detailing your picks and justifications, address that to newsableatstuff.co.nz. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, I, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line there. No, that, I think Chris, that it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, yeah we're, I'm not worried about it at all. That's Nothing iffy in there. On. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to talk now about an Australian story which is both terrifying and also feels, anyway, eerily familiar. A woman who is missing in the outback near Alice Springs. 30-year-old Angie Fuller has not been seen for more than six months since she went missing from a stretch of highway in the Northern Territory Desert. After a two-week search, local police declared her disappearance a homicide. The ABC's Sarah Spina-Matthews has been reporting on this disappearance and joins us now. G'day, Sarah. Hi. Tell us a bit more about Angie. What do we know about her? Yeah, so we know that Angie Fuller, she's a 30-year-old woman. She's a mother of two. And we know from her father that she had recently moved to Alice Springs to start a job for a drug and alcohol rehabilitation service. And we know that when she was last seen on January 9, she was travelling from Darwin back to Alice Springs to go to that job. And where was she actually last seen? Tell us about this kind of area, if you could. There is one spot, which is at a truck stop just north of the Alice Springs township, which is the last confirmed sighting, as police say, of um, of Angie Fuller. But there are a number of unconfirmed sightings of her. So there were some unconfirmed sightings of her sort of just northwest of Alice Springs. Um, which is where police conducted their 14-day land and air search for her. So this area, to give you a bit of an idea, Alice Springs itself obviously is a town, but around Alice Springs is really remote. It's really rugged. This time of year in January, it would have been extremely hot. You know, this is a desert that we're talking about. I mentioned in the beginning that the police declared her disappearance a homicide after a couple of weeks. Are there any leads for the police that you know of? The police were calling for public information. They were assuring the public they didn't believe that Miss Fuller's disappearance was suspicious. And then after some time, we're not exactly sure when, police started conducting a homicide investigation alongside that. Gee, Sarah, you know, this whole the whole story feels, you know, kind of dispiritingly familiar in a way, doesn't it? Like women going missing while travelling alone through remote areas. I think Australia has quite a few of these stories itself. Must be a bit harrowing, jarring when when yarns like this kind of pop up. Yeah, definitely. In the Northern Territory, we have a lot of people who kind of disappear into the outback because the terrain is just so unforgiving. Angie Fuller lived in the Northern Territory. Um, So, you know, she probably had more familiarity with it than a lot of people, but it's not uncommon for backpackers and people who aren't from this area to go missing and just, you know, get stuck along the way because they're just not aware of just incredibly harsh and remote this country is. So, yeah, it is. It's incredibly harrowing. There's a lot of community support for Angie Fuller. There's a lot of people who are really desperate to find out what happened to her, which is obviously a very nice thing to see as a reporter but yeah it's it's really harrowing well, hopefully there are some more leads and maybe some closure in this story and the 
foreseeable future. Sarah Spina-Matthews from the ABC, thanks very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks. Still to come on today's show, a chat with a young woman who's addicted to vaping and her mother who's trying to help her overcome it. But while you're here, if you're enjoying what you are hearing, chuck us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform. It really helps other people to find us as well. We have this long-running goal in New Zealand, smoke-free 2025, which is all aimed at drastically cutting the number of people who smoke cigarettes. And it's actually going pretty well. The number of daily smokers in this country has halved over the past 10 years. But out of those ashes, a new concern has emerged, vaping. Vaping was initially promoted as a less harmful nicotine delivery mechanism, which would help smokers to quit. But rates of youth vaping in particular are soaring and uh, Kahu Pihema is one of those people. Kahu started vaping at 14. She's now 18, and she's joining me now for a chat. Kia ora. Kia ora. T- Tell me a bit about how you got started vaping in the first place, if you wouldn't mind. Well, it was kind of just like by association, because I, I had quite a few mates that were like a couple of years older than me, and then they had started it from their parents, like seeing their parents vape like for quitting smoking and stuff. And then, yeah, like since hanging around them for so long, I was like, oh yeah, I'll give it a go. And then eventually, what, you you start thinking about it a lot? Yeah, so we all worked together, and so I would purposely pick up extra shifts, just because I would know, oh yeah, I'll be able to vape at work. How are things now, Kahu? Have you managed to quit? No, (laughs) no, but I have tried quitting, and I quit for about a month, but then it just started picking up again, yeah. yeah. Now, Kahu also suffers from asthma, and uh, the Asthma Foundation has done some research suggesting that one in five secondary school students vape. Um, and Kahu's mother is Sharon Pihema. Uh, she is the Asthma Foundation's Māori Community Liaison Officer, and she's with us now. Kia ora, Sharon. Kia ora. So you've been visiting schools. How bad is what you're seeing? Yeah, it is as bad as what we're hearing Um, and seeing in the media. I started this job back in May last year, and the problem's gotten worse Mm -hmm. in in that short amount of time. I mean, schools were already struggling with it, but it's really gotten worse in these last six months or so. Maybe there's an element of marketing to this that makes vapes kind of seem like video games, like an all-age kind of thing. Do you know what I mean there? Yep, absolutely. And you can ask teenagers, like the students that I've worked with, I'm just in a high school at the moment, and I asked them that question as well. Do they feel that the industry deliberately targets teenagers and kids? And they all say yes. I think it's about 80% of the students I've worked with this week have said yes, they're the target audience. If you could go back in time, would you change anything about the way that you talked to Kahu about this kind of stuff? Um, I don't know. I think it was really hard. And I mean, it's the same as a lot of families would be going through this where we kind of sort of had a, had an idea, eh, eh, Kahu, that you were vaping. Um, But like all other kids, eh, they're not going to tell you the truth straight away. You know, of course they're going to hide it, they're going to lie it, they're going to wait till they get into trouble before you can kind of get it out of them. Mm -hmm. And so we had to go away as your parents and actually learn about how vaping works, how nicotine works, so that we could figure out what we were going to do as a family. But I think if there was something that could be changed, it would be that when we reached out to try and find help from the doctor from a smoking cessation service, there was nothing for this age group. Mm. Um, There's no help there for any teenagers that want to quit vaping. 
Um, and I think there's a real gap there that the government should, you know, seriously look at investing in. Kahu and Sharon, thanks very much for, for coming on Newsable today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. A cautionary tale all about the emoji reaction, or an emoji reaction. Emojis reactions, of course, being wonderful things, although sometimes a bit confusing, as my messenger chat with my grandma will attest. But thankfully, a court in Canada has answered a lingering question pertaining to emojis, which is... Is an emoji thumbs up enforceable in a court of law as an acceptance of contractual terms offered? This story is from Reuters. is about a bloke in Saskatchewan in Canada, Chris Actor, who owns a flax farm. And Chris was chatting to a, a flax buyer who he had done business with before. The buyer sent through a proposed contract to buy some flax, as you do. And uh, Chris Actor, in response, sent a thumbs up emoji. Now, the months roll by and the proposed date of delivery comes and goes, but no flax arrives and the buyer is miffed. They hit up actor and uh, he says, no, 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 the thumbs up was not an acceptance of those terms. It was an acknowledgement that I had received that contract. It was not an acceptance of the contract. The buyer said, Mm-mm. a thumbs up is a signed, sealed, delivered in my world. I want my goddamn flax. And so naturally, as these squabbles do, this ended up in court. The court actually described, quite pleasingly, as a far-flung search for the equivalent of the Rosetta Stone in cases from Israel, New York State, and some tribunals in Canada, all seeking to unearth what a thumbs-up emoji means. What a wonderful, esoteric, philosophical question there. Anyway, long story short, the judge in this case agreed the thumbs-up emoji did, in fact, qualify as acceptance of the contract, and Chris Actor, the farmer, had to pay a touch over 100000 New Zealand dollars. So be careful what you type is the moral of the story, even if it doesn't have a clearly defined meaning. Melting emoji face. Anyway, that is Newsable for today. I'm Emil Donovan. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you tomorrow. Was this episode of Newsable usable? Then back NZ News by making a financial contribution at stuff.co.nz support.